Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of our listeners, whoever is, whenever you're listening, it's always time for terrible stories. Yes. It's always a good time for a terrible story. So how are you? I'm just dandy. Full house of people over there. Yeah. Full house of people. Mom and dad are here and loving boyfriend and dog are in the room with me. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, all good. Can't complain. We went to Alex's Christmas party for his company last night. Ah. Yeah. So (laughs) I was the DD, so I feel great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it makes you feel any better, I am not feeling a hundo this morning as well for kind of the same reasons. Oh, yeah. You were (laughs) overserved last night as well. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all good. I'm awake. I think and I can I can tell a story that I typed up like a couple weeks ago so <laughs> yeah that sounds you good know what I mean Makes sense. yeah um yeah I have not had the best week uh this week for sure it's just been very um just a lot just a lot of stuff happening all at once um like what well I got two articles our papers that I submitted back at the same time so that I have to have them both done and submitted back to like the review, the um, edits and stuff submitted back to them by like the 14th, 15th of January. Oh, that's <laughs> so not a lot. lot of time. Yeah. With the and holiday still, and everything. Still have the eel stuff going on and that's not slowing down anytime soon. And, um, and then uh, my grandma passed on Thursday. So Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it's been one of those weeks. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting some time off. Yeah, it sounds like you really need some time off for sure. Yeah. Um, and just we're going back to Virginia in a couple days. So it'll be nice to see family um, and all of that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's just been kind of a, a rough week. For sure. I'm sorry. That stinks. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I'm moving forward. We're all yeah. moving forward. So, I mean, she was like in her 90s. Was it your mom's dad or, or mom's it mom? Or my dad's, dad's dad. Oh. Yeah. Or dad's mom. Dad's sorry. mom. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> uh, mom, yeah. Sorry. So it's just been, it's been a lot. 
Um, yeah. Uh, so moving forward from that. Yeah. Um, happy things. Happy. Th- yeah, I know. Are we already at the happy things point? Um, yeah. <laughs> I actually was hoping just to go ahead and jump into this story because yeah, that's fine. Uh, it's it's like it's kind of long but maybe not long enough to split it into two parts. Oh, I see. Yeah, so I'm go for like, it. So this might end up being a long episode. That's okay. And this story I found out about a while ago. Um, and then I, on one of my many weddings that I went to this year, um, we stopped at this bookshop in Omaha that was like used books. Mm-hmm. And I found the book about this story and bought it so that I could write this story for the podcast. So oh, that's awesome. This is one of the really crazy, crazy survival stories that is just one of those really fascinating ones that you're just like, I don't even know how this happened. Yeah. <laughs> so it just happened somehow, though. Mm hmm. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates um, and their experience in the Andes. Okay. The pictures look like they're old. Was this like yeah. back in the 70s? Yeah. So I actually uh, scanned them out of the book. Okay. <laughs> that that's good. That's cool. Oh, so that's why some of the pictures have that like shiny Rainy. edge yeah. to them because it's the paper from the book. But yeah, so most of these pictures actually come from that source, and I will be sure to source it. It is literally the only source I use because um, Joe Simpson was the one who wrote it. Yeah. So First-hand um, account. First-hand account, yeah. So you're right. It is a little bit more old-timey, but it's uh, 1985. Okay. Um, but I don't think they had like incredible cameras that they took with them up this mountain which i don't blame them <laughs> yeah i wouldn't blame them either because some of it's in black and white and some of it's in color um so in 1985 joe simpson who was 26 at the time and simon yates who was 23 at the time just so younger than us yeah uh, say, just little baby <laughs> little babies uh were two um uk mountain climbers who decided to take a trip to the andes for an expedition to a remote mountain and for any of you who don't know the andes are like a wicked crazy tall craggly mountain range and a lot of the most like difficult climbs in the world are actually in the andes um not just in the himalayas so Mm -hmm. they're formidable formidable mountains so their goal was to successfully summit the 21,000-foot Ciula Grande from a different route, being the first people to do so. The daunting West Face had defeated all previous attempts, and this was the route that they intended to take. The Ciula Grande is deep in the Peruvian Andes and is very isolated, with only small villages and farming communities nearby. If they had trouble on the mountain, there would be no rescue. Um, yeah, it looks like a really, really remote place. It looks yes. really pretty, but like remote. Yes. I have a and hard time believing that there's even like farmlands there. I know, um, but they do have run-ins with some herders. So I think there's oh. maybe like herding, grazing, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. 
And it's it's not like it's close by, like the communities are close by either. They're like down in the valleys and stuff. Yeah. So if they fuck up on this mountain, like literally no one's coming for them. Oh, God. Yeah, that's rough. Like it's yeah, it's remote. So that's setting the scene, I guess. Right. Because clearly Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a survival story. And it's not like on Everest, you know, there are people at base camp who are you know, skilled and know what they're doing. And because everybody wants to climb Everest, this is a mountain that like hardly anybody's heard about. Yeah. And it's not like it's a common mountain to hike anyway. Yeah. So yeah. they really are on their own. So their base camp um, was a two days walk from the nearest town. Oh God. If that puts it into perspective. Yeah. Um, that's far. And the nearest town was 80 miles from Peru's capital of Lima. The camp was 15,000 feet above sea level, but they still had a ways to go up the mountain. Uh, Joe and Simon planned on summiting the mountain in just a few days, while Richard, who was a traveling companion that they had found in Lima and befriended, um, he was going to wait at the base camp for their return because he was not a climber. Joe wrote in his diary about the place on May 19th. It feels menacingly remote and exhilarating at the same time. So much better than the Alps. No hordes of climbers, no helicopters, no rescue. Just us and the mountains. Yeah, but no rescue. <laughs> yeah, but no rescue, though. <laughs> I get not wanting to do because like. We've talked many times about, you know, the crowding that's happening on some of these famous mountains. Yeah, and just like the litter that's happening, too, from all the people that are crowding it. Like, it's mm-hmm. just icky. It's really a shame. You yeah, know? it is. Not that I plan on going up anytime soon. No, but, but... just like knowing that that's happening to some place that really shouldn't be touched is like really annoying. Yeah, it's it's sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it would be like if we went to the South Pole and threw all of our trash everywhere, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's like the Sherpas there are the ones that like clean it up for the most part, too. So it's like, yeah, they're showing you guys the mountain and then also like picking up after you. It's just I don't know. It's just insane to me. It seems very like entitled for the people to yeah. go on a trip and then just throw their trash around and then expect somebody to clean up after them. Right. Especially people who are risking their lives already to, yeah. to get you there and then going to have to risk their lives to clean up what you left behind. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So that's not what was happening with this at all though. Um, like they, it was just the two of them. So the plan was to do an acclimatization climb up to the nearby Rosario Norte and some of the other smaller nearby mountains to kind of get their bodies physically prepared to climb to those higher altitudes before they attempt the west face of Saila Grande. Um, After they made a successful (laughs) acclimatization climb, (laughs) acclimatization, and after gaining an understanding of the local weather patterns, they decided to go for an ascent of Ciola Grande, which they determined would take about four days, which that's 
that's a lot of time that is but like i feel like in all of our stories that's like the shortest amount of time for (laughs) a hike that we've talked about yeah true so they decided to try to cut down on as much weight as possible to limit the weight in their rucksacks and decided not to take the bivouac tent and rely on creating snow holes to stay in overnight. And a bivouac is a temporary camp without cover. Okay. Um, I was just about to Google it. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's a French word, but it's used often in like climbing, mountain climbing. Um, They also only took enough food and gas for their little stoves to get them through the four-day climb. So they didn't have any more than that. Mm. Um, Yeah, so, like, good luck if you are going longer than four days. Exactly. A little foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the bivouac tent, like, one of the um, images on here is, like, Mm -hmm. a tree, like, two trees, like, a good distance apart. And, like, a tree limb stuck in between the two trees and then like a sheet that's Mm -hmm. like hung over it yeah or like another image is like one tree with like one limb angled down at like i don't know 45 degree angle with like Mm -hmm. a sheet over that and like pinned down so it's it's basically you have to create your own cover from like stuff that's around you basically plus plus your sheet or whatever you bring so they Uh, walked with Richard their friend through the field of moraines and moraines is like a glacial rocky area Mm -hmm. or a rocky area that's been like rocks deposited by glaciers like over millions of years um so they walked through this field of moraines and little mountain lakes to the base of the glacier but Richard turned around to go back to base camp and await their return They were cheerful and ready to tackle the challenge. They slept at the base of the glacier on their first night. Okay. That sounds fun. That's the first picture, I guess? Well, no. The first picture is them beginning their ascent. So the following day on June 5th, they began their ascent of Ciela Grande. They started the day climbing through the ice field of the glacier and then began to climb a steep ice couloir or steep ice gully. Okay. Um, they could continue to climb until uh or up to the ridge. So that like sheer ice wall. Yeah, that seems <laughs> that's, intense. That's the cool war. <laughs> wow. You know, day one shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, day one shit for sure. That's intense. I could never do that. I'll, I do the um the mini crossword every morning. Because I'm a nerd. And one of the hints today was a tool that climbers use. And it was um, it was pickaxe, I think is what it was. Yeah. Or something. I don't know. It, I thought it was pickaxe, but then maybe it was wrong. It was something axe. It was pickaxe. I mean, what other axe is there? <laughs> um, but yeah, I could never imagine like using a pickaxe. Oh, it was an ice axe. That's what it was. Um, same I could never. Yeah, I'm like same thing to me. Honestly, ice axe, pickaxe. You're like throwing something into an ice wall to grip onto. Mm-hmm. Like I could never. That would never be me. I would be so nervous. Well, and you gotta hope that the ice isn't gonna break once yeah. you stick your your ice axe into it. Which foreshadowing. 
So <laughs> I was going to say, like, I guess they do like test spots. Like they just kind of like tap, tap, tap. And this one seems good. And they just like, I don't know, have a good hold somehow. But ah, that makes me nervous. Like my body weight with a little axe. Yeah. No, I think a lot of practice goes into it. And just knowing like what ice looks like when it's good ice versus bad ice. You know? Yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's um, fair. So they're climbing up the couloir. And it is about 80 degrees in steepness. <laughs> so it's almost oh like a 90 degree. Oh, my God. Phase. Yeah. So they needed to set ropes to continue. The summit sat up above this extremely steep couloir. They dodged falling ice and snow throughout the climb as the cornices overhanging the summit um, on the ridge melted. And suddenly this climb seemed less casual and relaxing so cornices are overhanging clumps of snow that cling to rock or ridge lines and generally are not stable when the sun starts melting the snow and you can see mm. a picture of this on slide three of okay. what a cornice looks like yeah um it's basically like the snow there's so much snow that it's like overhanging on the side but it kind of stays there because it's frozen yeah but like if it, you were to step on it it would, it would just, fall you'd go go right through it yeah yeah it looks pretty though <laughs> yeah looks like marshmallows it does so they were unable to conquer the couloir and were forced to um do a bivouac and dig a snow hole overnight in a precariously perched lump of snow on the almost vertical slope <laughs> oh god that sounds like so much anxiety and snow holes are basically like you just dig a hole in the snow to sleep in because it's going to be a lot warmer than sleeping out in okay. the wind and everything which is um, ironic you would think if you're like in snow it'd be colder but yeah you would think heat. yeah so huh. but consider like an igloo yeah like a fair. very a very poorly made igloo yeah yeah so they would wear ropes and screw into the wall as they slept in their sleeping bags inside the snow cave because they were worried that this clump of snow was going to break off and yeah. like cause them to fall. That's very fair. Um, and Joe had actually experienced nearly falling from a snow cave to his death on another climb before, with the safety line being the only reason he wasn't dead. So they made sure to rope up as they slept. So they did experience that before. Okay. And that's like a little survival story in and of itself. Like, yeah, there's like a whole chapter in this book about it. So if you want to learn more, go read the book. But I was like, <laughs> I got to gotta cut some stuff down here. Yeah, that's fair. So the next morning on June 6th, refreshed, they set off towards the ridgeline only to find a barrier of tooth shaped Ciroc's. Uh, blocking their climb to the summit and those are like very tall ice pinnacles that if okay. they melt they'll break off and, and fall on you okay so i'm just teaching you about all the ways ice can kill you today i guess yeah i was gonna ask what a Ciroc was because like if i googled that i'm sure alcohol would come up instead oh true yeah <laughs> um so the snow on the ridge was also powdery, which apparently the Andes is known for like really powdery snow, which is great for like skiing and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But 
This makes climbing difficult and strenuous and the risk of falling off the ridgeline to their deaths through unstable snow cornices was likely a danger. Um, They decided to climb up an ice wall to get past the barrier instead of risking the powdery snow. It was then that they saw their summit 800 feet above them, a large cornice of powdery snow hanging at the top. The ridgeline they were trying to diverse began gathering clouds and it seemed bad weather was on the way, but they pushed forward. It was brutal climbing as they only made 300 feet in four hours through. Oh my God. That's insane. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking it's got to be like super, super deep snow. Yeah. Let's talk about slow moving. Like that's not going to take them four days to get through if that's how fast they're going. Right. Right. So. It was extremely cold and eventually exhausted and freezing. Simon and Joe were forced to stop and bivouac just 500 feet from the summit. Oh, my God. Basically, they were waiting out the weather. So it was at this point that Simon began experiencing mild frostbite with the tips of his fingers turning white. Oh, no, that's not good. Yeah. And we've talked about frostbite many times before. Um, Basically, it's your skin freezing. While you're yeah. still and your tissues freezing while you're still alive. Mm-hmm. Good times. 10 out of 10, do not recommend. <laughs> the following day, after two exhausting days, they made it to the summit on June 7th. After the brutal climb, Joe stated, We took the customary summit photos and ate some chocolate. I felt the usual anticlimax, sorry, anticlimax. What now? It was such a vicious cycle. And he was always thinking of the next climb, um, thinking that the next climb would be slightly harder, a bit more ambitious, and a bit more dangerous. I didn't like the thought of where it might be leading me. Yeah. But that's that, like, crazy drive, you know? Yeah, they're like, all right, this one's done. On to the next one. Yep. They're like, cool, cool, cool. Great. We did it. All right. (laughs) Now what? Yeah. But as many of us know from our Everest stories, usually the climb down is more dangerous than the summit. Yep, it's very so, true. Because you're tired, you're running out of resources, and I mean, you're definitely not in your right mind. No, not at all. The lack of oxygen all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this isn't even like a death zone mountain, but you're still, you're exhausted at that point. Yeah. And you're thinking like, oh, I can get down this. No, I climbed up. I'll get down. No issue. And then that's because you're not paying attention. And that's when you can have issues, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you start getting like lazy. Yeah. So while at the summit, Simon saw another mass of clouds rolling in on the North Ridge, which was to be their line of descent. And within a half hour of them moving down the ridge, the clouds closed in and they were lost in a whiteout. Oh, that's yeah. fun. No. So <laughs> they were roped- anything. No. Uh, they were roped up in the hopes that if one of them made a wrong step on the bridge and fell, the other would be able to stop their fall. Oh, God. Uh, Hopefully, they- right? Right. Hopefully. In theory. Yeah. They began somewhat blindly moving down the ridge with the lead climber responsible for identifying potential dangers in the storm. Simon was taking the lead when the rope quickly slid through Joe's gloves at the same time of a heavy explosion-like sound. 
Oh, avalanche. Actually, yeah, kind of. Simon fell through a snow cornice, which created an avalanche below them. Oh. Because they're on the top, basically. They're on this ridge line that's yeah. at the very top. So he fell through some snow that created an avalanche down the mountain. So at least they didn't get caught in the avalanche then, I guess, right? Yes. Yes. Gotcha. But he still fell, so that's still not good. Yeah, so he still fell. Uh <laughs> So Simon fell through the cornice and Joe just sat down using his weight to stabilize and anchor Simon and waited mm-hmm. while Simon climbed back onto the ridge using oh the rope. Oh my god. So, so their system kind of worked in theory then, huh? Yes. But like if Joe had slid, bye-bye both of them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> See you later. So after he made it back onto the ridge, Simon said, there was no warning, no crack. One minute I was climbing, the next I was falling. If he wasn't roped to Joe, he would have fallen 4,500 feet down the west face to his Oh death. my god. So. That's terrible. Yeah. Good thing he didn't do that. No. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to like the bad part yet. Oh my god. I feel like we've, I feel like we're in the bad part. Not yet. Uh, oh no my goodness okay so it was cold dark and dangerous but they had no choice but to continue going until they could find a safe spot to build a snow cave instead of saying staying on the dangerous ridge they began to descend down the east face of the mountain until they could traverse across flatter ground and create a snow cave they decided to bivouac for the night realizing that it was getting dark and cold and it would be too dangerous to try to get down that night They only had enough gas to make two drinks the following morning. This meant that they would not be able to melt water until they got down to the moraine lakes at the base of the mountain, which they were hoping to accomplish the following day once the storm had passed. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how long would that take? Because you can't survive, what, more than four days without water? Yeah. And, like, you know, we've talked before about how you know, eating snow as a source of water actually can often make you more dehydrated and mm-hmm. sap your energy and strength. So it's not recommended. No. For sure. You, you have to melt it first. Right. Because otherwise your body is doing the work to melt it and that's what makes you more dehydrated. Exactly. Exactly. Fun Things, fact. Yeah. Fun fact. Things you don't really think about as a normal person. <laughs> no. Yeah. I would never need to know that interesting fact. But, I mean, I'm sure people that are, like, in snow, like, climates know that. I feel like that might be, like, basic knowledge for people that are in snow climates. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, So, on June 8th, uh, they were confident in their descent um, that morning when disaster struck. (laughs) They were trying to descend down an ice cliff barrier to get down the steep call onto the glacier. Joe decided that it would be easier to free climb the cliff at its easiest point using ice axes. Mm -hmm. Um, But he couldn't rope up because the ice was too weak to hold a stake. Oh. Yeah. So free climbing it was. Oh, God. That sounds miserable. So at one point during his descent of the ice cliff, the ice around the axe broke sending him falling to the base of the cliff, a mere 25-foot drop. Oh, Which... What's that, like four stories? 
three really, like two and a half three two and a half three. i mean it's it's far for us but like considering the drops that <laughs> yeah that they could have been on <laughs> you think like, it like he just uh, tripped really <laughs> yeah yeah um and you're thinking oh you know there's big powdery snow at the bottom like maybe he'll be okay yeah well here's the thing so when he dropped he felt a shattering blow to his knee and felt his bones splitting oh no yeah he just uh, broke his knees he was in extreme pain and even uh through his thick thick snow pants he could see that his knee was twisting at a strange angle oh no uh-huh that's not good he was already thinking that this was it for him as an injury this bad at this elevation was often a death sentence. Even, yeah. Even on mountains where rescue might be possible. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't I look bet great. he's not so happy that there's no rescue around mm-hmm. now, huh? Mm-hmm. So Simon was not with him at the time of the fall, but quickly got to the cliff when he felt a pull on the rope. When he saw the injury initially, he thought, or Simon thought, without any emotion, you're fucked, matey. You're dead. No two ways about it. (laughs) You're fucked, matey. No two ways about it. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) uh, Joe mentioned upon seeing Simon that he instantly knew Simon's thoughts. He had an odd air of detachment. I felt unnerved by it, felt suddenly quite different from him, alienated. Because he's a dead man. Yeah. Like your friend just looked at you like you're dead. Yeah. Which in most cases, yes. Yes, yeah. he would be a dead man. But um, this isn't most cases. So we're going to move on. Yeah. And also, like, I'm sure, what was it? Simon was the one that was looking down at him. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure he's like trying to think through his head too. Like, do I leave him here or do yeah. I try to get him back up? Like, yeah. But it could be dangerous for him to, like, you try know, to help him. Try to help him. Right. Yeah. So Simon and Joe both knew that Joe was done for. It was unspoken. Yeah. There was no way he could get down off the mountain. And it was risky enough for an able bodied person, as they had found out. And Joe's leg wasn't just broken, it was like crushed and splintered. Ugh. So Simon left him and oh, no shit. making his way down. Oh, no. Well, hopefully he's, like, going to get help. Where? I don't know. There's got to be, like, I don't know, like, go down, go into town. Like, I know that's, like, a three-day trek, but still. The thing is, though, none of those people in the town are prepared or even know how to do, like, mountain climbing at the level they're doing it at. That's true. They probably look at those mountains and are like, por qué? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) like no 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 so so simon left him and uh joe states that we had a silent agreement we both knew the truth it was very simple i was injured and unlikely to survive simon could get down alone and survive Mm -hmm. Uh, simon did however look back to see that joe was using his ice axes as crutches to hop after simon oh 
Joe, at this point, no longer feared falling. He knew he was dead anyway if he didn't get himself off the mountain. So he was just trying his best at this point. And this is what started to change Simon's mind. Yeah. About saving him. Because he's like, oh, he clearly has enough energy and like willing to keep moving. And I don't want anybody to think like badly of Simon in this situation. Like, because rescue's not a thing here yeah right and it's it's either okay do they both potentially die or does one of them die and one of them survives and that's like at that point you have to look at it without emotion right and i don't think a lot of people are have ever been in a situation where they have to make those kinds of decisions but this is something that happens a lot in this community yeah um I'm sure they were aware of the risk and stuff. And who knows? Maybe they talked about it before they went up, too. Like, right, right. Like, if something happens to me, like, leave me. Like, go right. on. You know? I mean, at some point, it's like you have to acknowledge that you're screwed. Uh huh. So Simon decided that he might be able to get Joe down the slope um, if he roped him up in a big bucket seat and belayed him down the call, which was a steep 300 or sorry, 3,000 foot slope down to the glacier below kind of where they started. Yeah. And the slope is on slide five. (laughs) So that's what they're trying to get a guy with a broken leg down. Yeah, that's that's a lot. (laughs) Like me as an able-bodied person would be like, "Mm, probably not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I couldn't even do that on two feet. It's not like a sheer cliff, but it is very steep. Yeah, it looks like one of those things like you just got to sit on your butt and like crawl your way down. Right, right. So, so here, once they got down to the glacier, it would be easier for Simon to carry, physically carry Joe out on flatter ground. They were out of snow stakes. So Simon would have to dig out a seat for himself in the deep snow and use his weight and legs braced against the snow to lower Joe down instead. Okay. if his like seat that he digs fails, he slides down the mountain too. Yeah. They're, so they're just... back to that shenanigan. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a good word for it, shenanigan. Yeah. So they began trying this risky maneuver. And even though Joe was in agony the entire time as his leg hit every rock and his boot snagged on the snowy slope, it wasn't uh, working. Yeah. They would have to stop when the length of rope ran out and Joe would dig in and wait for Simon to come down the slope and then they would repeat the process. So they began getting into a routine, doing this over and over, slowly making their way down. Simon was picking up the pace of Joe's descent each time, regardless of Joe's excruciating pain, knowing that they were running out of daylight. Oh, Um, God. Joe says of Simon, he remained expressionless and continued to lower me. He had no time for sympathy. Yeah, I was going to say that's something that you just got to keep going through. Yeah. You're like, sorry, dude, but this it has to happen. Right. They, uh, yeah. So after eight belays, they were exhausted and just moving like machines. Um, and it began getting dark and snowing again. Joe noticed on his last belay that he was picking up dangerous speed as the slope got steeper. He realized he was approaching a drop 
or like a cliff and could not stop himself. Mm -hmm. He fell and his feet hung over into an empty space. Simon had managed to stop Joe's fall using his weight, but Joe couldn't even reach the ice wall six feet away from him to even attempt to climb back up. So he's just like hanging in there. Hanging there? Oh my God. With a broken leg. Oh no. Uh Uh-huh. Joe saw that there was at least 100 feet of air beneath his feet and the glacier. At first, he tried reaching the wall, but it was useless, and he couldn't climb up the rope as his hands were all frozen and seized. The circulation in his legs were cut off by the pressure of the harness that they had made. So, conveniently, the pain in his leg was gone, but he's not really in the best shape to be trying anything. No, Um, definitely not. They sat like this for an hour. Oh my god. With Simon dug in and Joe just like hanging there. Then they're just like sitting there for an hour trying to figure out what to do? Yeah. Oh no, that's scary. So Joe knew that Simon's only hope of survival at this point was to cut the rope, knowing that Joe may likely die of cold before Simon came to his decision anyway. Yeah. Uh, They both tried yelling to each other, but they couldn't hear each other over the wind, so they couldn't even plan anything. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so I literally left Haley on a cliffhanger with that one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The 40 (laughs) minutes was up. Yes, so we had to switch to a new recording. But anyway, um, and I will put up that diagram that is on slide five on the Instagram account in case anybody wants to follow along because it's kind of confusing if you don't have a picture in front of you for sure yeah um and i'm doing my best to kind of make it make sense Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lot of like snow and ice and you know if you haven't experienced it it's hard to picture it i guess yeah so simon is slipping in his snow seat which is the only thing holding joe up okay uh, he couldn't physically pull Joe up, though, because the weight his weight was too much and the slope was too steep. Um, and he, he had been trying to pull him up and just couldn't do it. So he realized after an hour that he was beginning to be pulled off of his snow seat. Um, oh, no. And the rope was slipping through his fingers. Oh, no. Um, Simon said of this experience, I can't hold it. I can't stop it. The thought overwhelmed me. He quickly grabbed a knife and cut the rope. There was no other option left to me. He knew there was was a very, very high chance that he had killed Joe and he was exhausted. It was dark and snowy. So he dug a snow hole to collapse in for the night. Oh, gosh, that's sad. Yeah. Just like this is my last resort. Right. Right. And it's, you know, it's basically like, do do we want, do I want to survive this or do I not want to survive this? That's the decision that it came down to, because at that point, it seemed like Joe was not going to survive it either way. So, yeah, that's hard. So Simon woke up the next day with hands that were starting to become more severely frostbitten and he began to have an exhaustible thirst. 
So like we said, because it takes so much energy to melt snow into water using just the body, eating snow can actually lead to advanced dehydration instead of hydration. Mm -hmm. So we didn't eat any snow. But he began moving down the slope, thinking that Joe might have survived a drop from the glacier if the snow was thick enough at the bottom. Um, But upon further inspection, he did not see Joe at the bottom of the 100-foot drop. He realized that because they could not see where they were lowering due to the storm, they hadn't been able to see the sheer drop. Once he descended the cliff, he found a deep crevasse at the bottom. Oh, God. It just keeps getting worse. Yes. So he knew that Joe has fallen to his his death through the crevasse. Jesus Christ. Uh, (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. He shouted Joe's name into the depths, but did not hear a response. Well, I'm sure it's, like, still windy, too, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't hear each other still. This solidified his resolve to leave the mountain alone and save his own life. Yeah. He's like, that's all I can do. I gotta go back and help myself. I mean, because there's no body and where the, that they were hanging over, like, below them directly on the glacier was a deep crevasse so yeah like you're just not getting out of that that was like it. it's a solid assumption to make that joe is dead yeah 100 percent at this dead. point so while on his trek back to camp to richard he fought with emotions of guilt grief anger and a looming fear of what others in the climbing community and joe's family would think of him cutting the rope in the end, after deliberation, he resolved to tell everyone the truth and started with Richard first on his return to camp. Yeah. So he was debating not telling them exactly how it happened. Yeah, because he's like, I don't want to be accused of like murder. Right. Plus, they're the only two people on the mountain. Yeah. So there's no one else to, you know, but he decided to tell the truth. That's good. So, meanwhile, Joe was, in fact, alive. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Plot twist. He had found himself falling straight through the crevasse, and the the soft snow covering the crevasse stopped his fall. But then the snow broke and sent him plummeting another 50 feet down into the crevasse. Good God. This guy has had, like, enough adventures for a week. Right? So he had come to rest on a slope of snow, a precarious platform in the crevasse that loomed over an enormous drop. Oh, God. (laughs) So how did he get out? Like, obviously he had to get out, right? Uh Uh-huh. So shocked, but realizing he could move, he remembers that he laughed, thinking, alive? Well, fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) Which I no shit. (laughs) I love because it's a very great adjacent statement to, hey, I'm alive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what I was just thinking of, too. Like, I'm alive. Well, fuck me. (laughs) So he managed to hammer an ice screw into the crevasse wall, hoping the rest, hoping to rest the night in the crevasse. But the darkness and desperation of his situation started to set in. Yeah, I'm sure. So Joe was 50 feet down into the crevasse. And from what he could tell, there was 100 feet or more of the crevasse below him. Oh, God. That's a lot. very deep. 
Yeah. Um, he began shouting Simon's name over and over again. He realized that the rope he had just been hanging from um, on like hanging from the cliff uh, mm-hmm. was frayed and cut. And so there was a slow realization that Simon had cut the rope. Yeah. Right. Um, although Joe didn't blame Simon for the decision. Yeah. Cause it's like, he understands that that's what he had to do. Mm-hmm. But he did assume Simon wasn't coming for him, knowing Simon likely thought he was dead because he could hardly believe that he was alive. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> like, it's like, no shit, I'm alive. But then also no one's coming for me because I would believe I'd be dead too. <laughs> right. And he has a broken leg. Let's remind yeah. everybody. Yeah. He's got oh, a broken no. leg. Um, so there's really nothing to do but like deciding to try to climb out. Uh, yeah. But after four attempts, he kept falling back onto that snowy ice platform Mm -hmm. uh he began to despair that he would die there which same yeah so when sunlight began streaming through the crevasse however he decided to abseil to the bottom until he found a way out so that abseil abseiling i think is similar to like repelling oh okay i just want to make sure i heard that right Mm mm-hmm the sport uh, or activity of descending a rock face or other near vertical surface by using a doubled rope coiled around the body and fixed at a higher point. So it's, okay. it's kind of like repelling. I gotcha. Right. So he's deciding to get down to the bottom of this thing to see if he can like find a way out down there. Okay. So he abseiled down until he found a snow-covered floor, which turned out to be another snow bridge covering the lower chamber of the crevasse oh my god (laughs) it just keeps going i know literally so however he found a snow slope he could climb to the roof of the crevasse instead of like trying to climb up a sheer wall yeah climbing up a slope is much easier Mm -hmm. right especially if you have a broken leg um so he began to make his way up it carefully He got to the slope by wiggling on his stomach across that snow bridge to prevent it from collapsing beneath him. The slope was about 130 feet high and 45 degrees at the bottom where he was, but then it heightened to like 65 degrees going towards the top. Okay. So that's the angle that he's got to try to climb. So say that again. It's like a increasing steady slope yeah so on the bottom it's 45 degrees and then it it changes the angle and increases to 65 degrees going towards the top so it's kind of like a like an exponential curve yeah yeah yeah. i was trying to visualize it in my head yeah 45 to 65 which 45 is like this so it's it's yeah like that it's is yeah what it would look we're we're doing a lot of things with our hands right now that the listeners can't yeah. see. sloping up yeah curving up yeah so he estimated it would take about 10 minutes to climb with two working legs but he didn't have two working legs yeah that's true so instead he used his ice axes to haul himself up with his arms and hopping on his good leg nice so it took about five hours for him to climb the entire slope. Jeez, that's so exhausting. Yes. But he finally hauled himself over the top of the crevasse. 
After this, he lay half conscious, resting until he realized he was still 200 feet above the glacier and six miles from base camp with no food, no water, and a bum ass leg. Oh, God, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. He stated of his predicament. It was ironic to have come here searching out adventure and then find myself involuntary trapped in a challenge harder than any I had sought. Yeah. yeah. So, but he could either lay there and be sad about it or keep moving, basically. You gotta keep moving. So Maybe like just, rest for a little bit, but keep moving. Yeah. And honestly, like, like as far as the terrain is concerned from here on out, like, it's significantly less difficult than anything they have done up until this point. But yeah. he is alone with a broken leg and no resources, and he's exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. So he decided to accept the challenge and begin using a combination of hauling his body using the ice axes, um, using the axes as crutches, and tobogganing down slopes to get off the glacier. So he would just, like, sled Oh my god. <laughs> On what? His butt? Yeah. That's funny. Soon he found Simon's footprints in the snow and he began to follow them, stopping to eat snow and occasionally rest. Um, oh, which... but we said don't eat snow. But at some point, you know. You gotta do something. You gotta do something. So he mentions experiencing a voice that would prod him to action when he rested for too long. Oh, and this was one of the main reasons he was able to make his way off the mountain. Yeah. Unfortunately, yet another storm was building, but Joe moved on, scared he would lose Simon's footprints that were guiding him off the glacier. As yeah, because there's the- only like one other person around. So like you, if you see footprints, it's definitely your guy. Yeah. Like <laughs> there, there's no other person it could be. <laughs> yeah. You got to keep track of those. Yeah, so as it grew dark, he continued to follow, but was hit by falling ice from a nearby Serac or Cornice. This guy literally just has the worst <laughs> luck, I feel like. Yes. Like, you know those people that just, like, things just keep happening to them? It's, like, that, but, like, all within, like, three days for one mm-hmm. person. <laughs> well, and that's why just not everybody is out doing this kind of stuff, because yeah. <laughs> most of us are like, I'm good. I don't need to do that. Right. So he decided to stop for the night, digging a snow hole in pain and in exhaustion so he could just collapse. The following morning, he woke up with an insatiable thirst and the footprints covered by snowfall from the prior night storm. So he lost his trail. Ugh, stinks. He had I, been... imagine that, I imagine that thirst is also like that 2 a.m. thirst that you experience when like you're super dehydrated. Yeah. When you've drunk too much the night before. And it's like that Spongebob scene where he's just like, water. Water. (laughs) I need need it. it. (laughs) We make a lot of Spongebob references Uh, on this podcast. I watched it the other... I don't hate it. I watched it the other day because I saw it was on. I was like, oh, I could do this. Yeah. 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 It's that, that thirst. So he had been two days and three nights without water. Which was exacerbated by the elevation, as humans need more water at higher elevations than they do at sea level. Mm-hmm. So he began moving off the glacier, but he had to make frequent stops to stand up and check for crevasses before him. And yeah. w- once was forced to do a to double back 
on his route when confronted with a particularly wide crevasse that he couldn't cross. Oh God. So what do you so, do? So he's, he's just, he's going back and trying to find a different route, but like, this is just making everything longer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he began also experiencing the first symptoms of snow blindness. Oh no. Um, What's that? What's the first symptom? You go crazy? Burning eyes. Oh, yeah, that's not fun. Because his sunglasses were cra- were smashed in the crevasse fall, and all he's been doing all day has been looking at snow. Oh, yeah, the bright white. Yeah, yeah, that stinks. So finally, however, he made it to the moraines at the base of the glacier. So, like I said earlier, moraines are rock fields created by glacier movement, picking up and depositing rocks and boulders over like millions of years. Gotcha. Um, here he knew he might find water, though, in the form of snow melt, and later, and then later the snow melt lakes that he knew were down there, but. He could no longer crawl due to the rock field before him. So using his sleep mat, he wrapped his knee and leg and decided to hop his way through the rocks. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there was frequent falling and he wounded his face and forehead several times on the sharp rocks, but it was his only choice. He began finding trickles of water, but most at the beginning were too small to completely quench his thirst. And he was forced something. Yes. He was forced to gulp down muddy, gritty water from the small puddles. Mm. Eventually, come nighttime, he was forced to spend another night in his sleeping bag in exhaustion. So, like, what night are we on now? Night I feel like we're on, like, seven or eight now. Okay. Out, like, in total, you mean? Yeah. Like, from the beginning? I feel like Yeah, from on... the beginning, but then also, like, since he was, like, on his own. Oh, since he's on his own, I think this is night two. Okay. It just seems like a lot. Yes. Far more than they had planned, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Meanwhile, Simon was still sitting in his grief and anger, and Richard were beginning to make preparations to leave base camp in the next couple of days. And they have no idea Joe is still alive. Yeah, they're just like, all right, time to go. We lost a guy. Yeah. Gotta get, gotta ski daddle. So, like, Joe could make it back to where base camp was, and everyone would be gone. Yeah. So now it's a race against the clock for Joe. Yeah. So Joe began realizing that Simon and Richard may have left by now, but there was no choice but to move forward. He knew if he could get to a significant water source, he could have a chance. It took him five more hours of hopping to finally reach a substantial flow of meltwater. He sat there for a while drinking before he found the footprints of Simon and Richard in the mud which raised his spirits again. That's nice. He began moving towards the lakes, which were long slivers of water that ran down the valley toward where they had set up base camp. Mm -hmm. In these hours, he moved methodically in a dreamlike state, ignoring the pain and hallucinating from time to time. Oh, God. (laughs) That's when you know it's getting bad when you start hallucinating. Yeah. 
He reached the lake by 4 p.m. and began crawling down the gravelly banks of the long lakes toward where the camp would be below a dam of rocks. He wouldn't be able to see the camp from his vantage point, so even then, he did not know if the camp was there. Ah, uh, that stinks. He was so tired that he would fall asleep for an hour at a time, wake up, and continue his crawl. Oh my god. At some point, he had woken up, and it had grown dark, and yet another storm was moving in. What the heck? So, and at this another elevation, one? it wasn't snow, it was... Uh, rain, lightning, and thunder. <laughs> oh, God. That sounds miserable. So he crawled around in the darkness around the area where he knew the camp should be, calling out for Simon. It was raining and the wind was blowing loudly, and he accidentally crawled through their bathroom area at camp and then became covered in human feces. Get out of here. That's so. disgusting. <laughs> This guy, oh, he's got the worst luck. That's poor guy. I know. But that meant that the tents should be nearby. Yeah, uh, that's If true. Simon and Richard had not already left. But Joe oh. realized he had finally come to the end of his strength and he needed someone to come help him. He was free to do. Yeah. I, he was just frantically calling above the wind now, and he began to see lights in the darkness and hear voices, voices of Simon calling, Joe, is that you, Joe? So when Simon found Joe, Joe began sobbing and retching convulsively. Oh. They managed to get him into a tent, clean him off, gave him tea, and warmed him up. That's good. They saw him, they got him. Joe and Simon told their stories in excitement and relief, and Joe told Simon that he did not blame him for cutting the rope, and he had made the right decision in a desperate situation. Yeah. Simon checked on Joe's leg, which was swollen and badly infected. Joe had also had fairly bad frostbite on his fingers, and they knew they needed to get him to a hospital. Yeah. So, but they're still two days away from the nearest town well hopefully he can last two more days right right well at least he has like water and food now so that's yeah yeah and people around him like if he does die he doesn't die alone that's always nice yeah so basically they went to some nearby farmers in this nearby settlement and um, it took him, them two days to get him to a hospital via mule. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just put him up on a mule. And this hospital was in Cajatambo, Peru. Golly, say that five times fast. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say it like halfway decent if I didn't have like some Spanish background. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> here he had an operation done on his leg before he was flown back to the United Kingdom and he realized he had lost 42 pounds in those few days. Oh gosh. Which hey, if you want to lose weight, just break your leg and climb up or climb down a mountain, take yeah. a couple falls down a crevasse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just casual, the <laughs> usual. Um his doctors later told him that he would get arthritis and that the whole knee joint would have to get removed in the next 10 years. But he continued climbing after he healed, which that 
seems to happen a lot in these kinds of stories. Yeah. It was later revealed that when Simon found him um, that rainy, thundery night, uh, Joe was actively dying. Um, He weighed only 90 pounds at this point. He was suffering from ketoacidosis in which he didn't have enough insulin to make blood sugar and he was falling into a coma. Oh my God. So he was literally, it was just in the nick of time that they, yeah, seriously. Oh my God. That's scary. Yeah. On the brink of death. Basically, which like considering everything that he went through. Yeah. I'm shocked that like he lasted as long as he did. Right. So Simon and Joe have since admitted that they made many errors in judgment, including not carrying extra supplies and allowing themselves to become frostbitten. The lack of supplies, including gas to melt water, had left them no maneuverability when things began to go wrong, which caused them to quicken their pace instead of stopping to wait for storms to pass. Mm hmm. They have both stated that secondhand opinions of the climb was of no concern for them as they both knew exactly what happened. Yeah. Joe has further stated that he didn't approve of any harsh or unfair criticism of Simon's decision to cut the rope that had likely saved Simon's life. Yeah, definitely. Later, after revisiting Ciula Grande for a documentary of the experience in which he was reacting his own survival uh which maybe not the best decision but he experienced severe panic attacks i'm sure (laughs) right he stated i should have never come back it was not cathartic it was terrifying upon his return from peru he learned that he had ptsd and the panic attacks continued into his normal life He stated that he had contempt for counseling, but reluctantly agreed to therapy, although declined when the therapist took too long to get back to him. That's annoying. This was in 2003, and mental health and therapy was not really talked about and was looked down upon at this point in time. And I think this response through today's lens was a rash decision, but we were still kind of in that time period of like you know you should be a strong man you should be able to suck it up and deal with it kind of thing yeah i strongly encourage anybody going through ptsd to find a therapist however the route to finding therapy is not a straight line and you will have to find what works best for you um joe however found therapy in writing the book touching the void and reliving the full horrors on the page instead of in person um and this is what brought him some closure from the experience. That's good. At least he has some closure. And that is my my one resource today uh, is Touching the Void, the true story of one man's miraculous survival by Joe Simpson. And that is the story of Joe and Simon. That is a miraculous story. Yes. For I sure. hope it wasn't. I was rushing through it because I had like seven pages, but I hope it made sense. It made sense. Okay. There was a lot to keep track of. Yes. Like distance and days and fall, feet, feet of fall. Yeah. The main struggle (laughs) got across. Yeah. Uh, But that one is just, it's crazy. 
It is. That's wild. I'm glad that he survived, though, because that's definitely a crazy story. Right? Yeah. And it's it's kind of on the level of, like, Shackleton as to, like, how did they live through that? Yeah. He didn't even eat any leather shoes. Didn't. If you don't eat leather shoes, are you even doing it right? <laughs> <laughs> My God, I would vomit. Are you even surviving if you haven't eaten leather? Yeah, like how was it really that bad? <laughs> did you did you eat leather? It wasn't that bad. Surviving and thriving, eating your shoes. <laughs> yes, one oh one. Um. So yeah. So that's the story um that's neat it's cool that you read the book and everything too i did and it's all highlighted up so that i could sit here and i had to cut down like so much too oh i'm sure there's probably plenty of aside stories that like i don't know because they both they both had experienced like crazy things before this too yeah but they came out of it like relatively okay yeah so well I looked into animals in the Andes. Oh, yeah. Conservation corner. Yeah. If you wanted to have a little chatty chat about that. Yeah, let's do Um, it. So I looked up animals in here. And there are a variety of animals that live uh, in the Andes in Peru. I think everybody's probably more familiar with like the alpacas mm-hmm. <laughs> around Machu Picchu, but I did not know this when I was searching into it. I found this out that it they have an Andean condor. Mm-hmm. Did you know about that? I I knew about, but I don't know much about it. Yeah, so um, their cousin, the California condor, is what like near extinct. Yeah, critically endangered is their yeah. conservation status yeah um and i don't know much about like the california condor other than they are like that's one of the things that i hear all the time is that they're critically endangered I and mean, we need to save the california condor kind of thing mm-hmm. um so there is a condor in the andes mountains it is the andean condor uh they are a carnivore and their body is four feet big wide big long however you want to measure that um <laughs> And their wingspan is up to ten and a half feet. That's and they so weigh it's so big. Big. Oh my god. <laughs> I know. It's like and they weigh up to thirty-three pounds. And I'm reading off of um the National Geographic site right now, and they okay. have a little um like silhouette graphic of their size rel- relative to a six foot man, and it is just like absurd. Okay, so I should go look at it real quick. I'm just looking at a picture of a human versus a condor. It's like a, a literal real life picture. <laughs> yeah. I, That's a big I vulture. I haven't seen the real life one. I'll Google that later. But yeah, it's it's large and they're ugly. They're not like a cute bird either. That's okay. Um, not every bird has to be beautiful. No, no, it's very true. <laughs> And so, like, the Andean condor's uh, conservation status is listed as vulnerable, and their population trend is decreasing. And so, like, to put things in perspective, like, the the scale of lowest to highest or, like, least concerned to extinct, it goes least concerned, nearly threatened, vulnerable, which is where the uh, Andean condor is, and then endangered 
critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and then extinct mm-hmm. altogether. And so like the difference between extinct in the wild and extinct is like there might be some species still in captivity at zoos, whatnot, but they're not found in the wild anymore. So that's yeah. extinct in the wild. And then like extinct is they're not even in zoos or the wild or anything right. like that anymore. They're just okay. not found. Um, so what is that? Like seven, seven tiers. So, Mm -hmm. um, on a scale of one to seven, seven being the worst, the Andean condor is a three on its way to a four. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Um, Real real quick before you move on, I'm going to, uh, how do I screen share? Share screen. I got to show you this picture because so bad. Do you see it? Oh my god. <laughs> it's a picture of one of these fuckers chasing down a full-sized wolf. They're big and like <laughs> their wingspan like it looks like they could just wrap their wings around this wolf and it would just like take it over. It's so big. Okay, they're sorry. So go big. ahead. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's so they're so big though, which is why I wanted to pick them cuz they just they're absurd animals. Yeah. Um So these birds prefer to live in windy areas where they can glide on the air currents with little effort, hence like the Andes Mountains. Um, They're typically found in mountainous regions, since their name suggests that, but they also like to live near the coasts that have a lot of ocean breezes as well, or even even deserts that feature strong thermal air currents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their characteristics, they're mostly black. But the males have a distinctive white collar around their necks. It's like a big fluffy collar. Like um, they're fancy rich boys. Yes, yes. yes. Fancy rich boys. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they have some white markings on their wings as well. Um, and similar to their California condor re- relative, they also have bald heads. Mm-hmm. For, their, for their diet, they are vultures. So they keep their sharp eyes peeled for anything that they can find they prefer to feast on large animals wild or domestic and in picking the carcasses they perform an important function as a natural cleanup crew so Mm -hmm. you know they help in the decomposition process you could say yeah um along the coast they'll feed on dead marine animals like seals or fish these birds do not have sharp predator claws but they will raid birds nests for eggs even young hatchlings and so now we're getting into their breeding and population. And one of the reasons, if not probably like one of the more important or largest reasons why their conservation status and their population is decreasing or getting worse is because they only reproduce once every other year and they reproduce one single offspring every oh. time. Yeah. So it's like they're not... They're not doing the most when it comes to putting their population back out. And yeah, they're very, the very case selective. Yeah. So they're long lived birds. They've survived over 75 years in capt- captivity, but they reproduce slowly. A mating pair produces a single offspring every other year, and both parents must care for their young for a full year. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a lot of work yeah. every other year. Yeah. And although it's considered threatened, it's in far better shape than the California condor. Re- and so then it goes into saying that the reintroduction programs for the Andean condor are working to grow populations of the South American birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all I got off of National Geographic. Um, 
So that's all about the Andean condor. And then I was Googling if there's any conservation programs. And I was mm-hmm. also Googling like their their bird call because I was curious about that. Yes. Um. So let me see if I can get like a, I don't know if this is going to, you're going right, to pause. In. The Andean condor conservation program is under the leadership of Louis Jacome and has he spearheaded the innovation in Andean condor captive rearing, rescue, reha- and rehabilitation. He's mm-hmm. developed new release and monitoring methodologies and promoted conservation education and local community par- partnerships. So that's at Z- zooconservationoutreachgroup.org. So it's the mm-hmm. acronym. It would be zcog.org. Um, gotcha. But yeah, so there are conservation efforts in place for the Andean condor. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people like look down on vultures or think they're very gross animals and stuff like that. But like, honestly, they're super important for the ecosystem. I think basically like if we didn't have vultures, there would be like so much disease within or like they basically help prevent disease spread by by eating Eating the dead flesh flesh and stuff yeah Yeah. so just anytime you see a vulture just know that they're there to do something important that they enjoy doing but you find really really gross and that is removing of dead animals from the ecosystem so speaking of like animals purposes this made me think about something and you might know the answer to this fire ants yeah what is their purpose i don't fucking know (laughs) all i know is that they always seem to find me yeah out out of all the people like okay this week i put on a skirt i was gonna go to work a fire ant fell out of the skirt and landed on my foot and bit me (laughs) how (laughs) don't know i don't even know why i'm in there that's it's just silly. Because I double checked because then I felt really gross. Yeah, I'm like sure. Like, it all out, ants but... on me? Yeah. Oh, my, my boss and I were like up at this park a couple weeks ago or like really two months ago at this point. Um, And we were getting bitten by fire ants and she was just so frustrated. She's like, I don't understand their purpose. Like, why do they exist? So I was like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Do you want to know why why they're important? Yes, sure. Okay. Fire ants are extremely effective in controlling plant feeding insects and arthropods such as boll weevils in cotton and stink bugs in soybean. Under some conditions, fire ants keep the pest populations below the level of economic loss, providing a financial savings to growers. Oh, yeah. So it's like controlling the crop pest. Yeah. Uh, they do have some predators, including armadillos, antlions, spiders, birds, and horned lizards. Hmm. But they are not known to have a major impact on fire ant populations. That's interesting. So they still suck, in my opinion. Yeah. There's not <laughs> as big of an importance as I thought that they would have. No. Um, but yeah, vultures are cool and they're actually kind of sweet. Um, yeah. They like hop around all silly and <laughs> they are silly hoppers. So cute. Yeah. But I mean, I realize that they're they've got creepy bald heads, but not everybody's into that. No. 
<laughs> I just think they're silly. They're silly birds. <laughs> they are, but they're also important. So that's why I yeah. want to talk about it because yeah. they're ugly, but they're important and they're threatened yeah. or endangered. <laughs> and we can't just keep talking about polar bears, panda bears, and the cute ones that everybody likes because um, there are other equally if not more important animals that need conservation too yeah i agree um all right so happy things yeah happy things why don't you go first um i guess i guess my happy thing is that it's almost christmas and i'm gonna go home and see my family for a little bit which will be nice yeah Um, yeah i think that's that's about it (laughs) that's a good happy thing yeah um what about you? Uh, happy thing is probably honestly the same. We might go yeah. to Bahia Honda today and hang out with some friends, like grill out. Um, Bahia Honda is a state park down here. Yeah, um, I've been there and snorkeled there. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. just opened up. Like after Irma, there was a section of it that was closed off for repairs, and they just opened that section back up. I don't know, like a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And so. Oh, what did that take? Like four years to repair. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, we might go there and hang out today. We'll see. But yeah, just having my parents in town and like we're going to Iowa for Christmas. So like seeing Alex's family and everything, it that'll be nice. Happy yeah. things, you know. It'll be yeah. nice to get a break from work. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, also happy thing. One of my good friends from uh Haymarket, our hometown, got engaged the other day. Oh, yeah. That's a happy thing. That was nice. Yeah. 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 I wish my friends would stop getting engaged. I, I've, <laughs> yeah, I'm like entering the part of my life where my friends just keep getting engaged. And like, it's one of those things, like, you don't want to sound like an asshole, but like, I think after like the fourth one gets engaged in like a month, like, your natural reaction is just to be like, oh my God, another one. Like, yeah. You're just like, sh- you're happy, but you're also like shocked at the same time. Yeah. This was <laughs> the year for us. It was, it was crazy. We still have one more, well, tech kind of two more to go to um, this year. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we're not done yet. <laughs> yeah. Like I have like my good friend that I've known since the third grade. She's getting married in May. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my old roommate who I'm still friends with from college, she's getting married in September. And between them two, my cousin Shelly is getting married in July. Oh, yep. <laughs> and then Nikki just got engaged. So she was like, you know, let's just get through Jesse's wedding before we talk about mine. Oh, my God. I was like, thank you. I appreciate that. But also yeah. she's like been every time I've like asked her about like what she would like for her wedding, like even like a couple years ago before she even met her fiance. Like, she's always been the type of person that would just rather go to a courthouse with her parents and, like, Mm -hmm. her significant other and, like, maybe, like, one or two friends and just, like, do a quiet thing Mm -hmm. and then just have, like, a backyard barbecue party reception type of thing. Yeah. So, um, we'll see if that still is what she's going to (laughs) do. Yeah. Well, have fun. It's going to be the year for you. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like we, there's so many people that's like, I'm not, not going to go to your wedding, you know, because you're like really important to me. And it was just really difficult to, to like prioritize. Yeah, I know. And you know, I'm the maid of honor for Jesse's wedding. 
And then like Carolyn asked me to be in her wedding if I can get the time off. And so it's just like, and then obviously then it's like my family member, like I going to go to that one, you know? Right. Um, but like the maid of honor thing is like, it's, I just, I knew it was going to be a lot, but it's one of those things where it would be easier if like the bride also kind of kept communication of like when <laughs> she was making decisions yeah. <laughs> about things. Um, so yeah like the, like a two or three weeks ago Nikki texted me because she was like at the bar with Jesse and was like hey like do you mind sending a text to the group about like the bachelorette party like you know I was just talking to Jesse about that and like you know she said Charleston or whatever and I was like sounds like you know more information than I do because I didn't even know she was, <laughs> she was on the list <laughs> so you can feel free to send that text because I don't know any of that information right <laughs> yeah that's that's uh, thank god I wasn't in anybody's wedding oddly enough I wasn't actually in any of the weddings but like it still was so it's just so much it is so much money and like I was it is and like I was talking to my parents about like there's the bachelorette party evolution and you know my parents oh, yeah. like, you know like when we got married like our bachelorette and bachelor party was like in the town that we lived and Mm -hmm. it was just like we went out one night to the bar like it was fun like maybe there was a theme but it wasn't like a whole weekend traveling somewhere right and so that's like the other thing too it's like now it's just like everybody Mm -hmm. travels to like a destination to do it and it's like yeah why like why do we do that yeah typically like you would go to where the bride lives and then like you would go out there Mm -hmm. but yeah it's changed a lot I had to talk. I love my maid of honor, of course. She was awesome. She was talking about wanting to do the bachelorette party in Texas and go to Austin. And I'm like, here's the thing, though. I want everybody to be able to come. Nobody but me lives in Texas. Yeah. I'm going to force everybody to come out here. Like, let's just do something literally like right before the wedding. Yeah. So we actually we did it in Richmond, which was that's nice, though. Yeah. yeah, That's so fun. Yeah. like all my friends that I would probably have in like my wedding are scattered at this point. So, right. so it doesn't really yeah, matter. Yeah, there's no easy way to do it. And also, none of my friends have come to visit me. So I'd be like, all right, you motherfuckers, we're doing it here. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that because let's be real. Uh, the keys are a vacation Very destination. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it for sure. I like, I just made the joke to Jesse the other day because like she told me a date that she, her and her husband or, future husband we're gonna come visit mm-hmm. that date came and went did not hear from her they did not visit like you know no plan was made yeah and like last year they were in miami visiting one of our friends uh-huh. and i and you know it's like Miami's like closer but it's mm-hmm. still kind of far mm-hmm. but it's like if you're there for a week you can like you know come down for a day or two and right you know and so I was just making some jokes I was like girl there's a reason why nobody visits me I'm so fucking far because she joke, she she didn't joke she genuinely asked if we were driving to Iowa for Christmas and I was like fuck no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know, I someone I like, asked if we were driving I'm like it takes two days if you're pushing yourself no yeah, fucking way that's like half of my vacation yeah it's like do you know how far the keys are like there's a reason no one visits me yeah <laughs> And then she was like, I'm just trying to save up flight credit. And I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> sure. Well, next time you're in Miami, we're a four-hour drive away. So right. get a rental car. Oh, my goodness. It's a lot. It just is. It is. I have too many friends, and I want to see them all, and it's just, it is what it is. So, 
We I have know. two more. Uh, one, like, I think, I guess next week, but it's going to be in Virginia that would while be nice. we're there. I, pl- I yeah. planned it so that it all worked out that way because I'm smart. Yeah. And then the next one's going to be in Texas. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Thank so God. We don't have to fly anywhere. I know. It's just so hard because it's like then you spend money for, like I like the bachelorette things. It's like you spend money to go travel somewhere for the bachelorette. And then you like a month later, you're buying another plane ticket yeah. to go to the destination of the wedding. And it's just yep. like, oh, my goodness. Yes. It's like, a it's lot. Just, it's so much. It's and then like much. the dresses and stuff like I just <laughs> being in weddings, I have like. I've been taking mental notes about things. Yeah. Like, you know, the bridesmaids dresses. Like, I bought mine while I was buying Christmas presents. So I was like, cool, that's $200 that I can't spend on Christmas presents now. Right. And like, I've been spending so much money on Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, <laughs> you know, really tight for money this month. Yeah, same. <laughs> so I'm like, note to self don't yeah. ask the bridesmaids to buy their bridesmaid dresses during Christmas present buying season. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. Like, it's just a lot. Like, help people save a little bit of money. Yeah. I mean, oh, sorry. I just gave mine a theme and a color. Yeah. It was like, go go forth. Go crazy for it. I, I know. I want to, like, approve it before you buy it. Like, make sure it's... Gonna know, look good and everything. Right. But other than that, like, find find your own, like, because... <laughs> yeah, because everybody's, everybody's got a different budget. Different. Yeah. yeah. So... I think that's just the way to do it these days. It's like have everybody mm-hmm. just be happy. Like it's supposed to be a happy day. Like it shouldn't be stressful for like anybody. I know. I know. And it's going to be stressful for somebody if, and yeah. not the bride. So <laughs> I know, right? Um all right, well this has been wedding talk with yeah. uh Jillian and okay. Haley. Um only one of us is married, so don't take anything <laughs> I say to account with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. Um all right, so uh, where can our listeners find us if they want to listen to us talk more about <laughs> the weddingwire.com? Um, <laughs> yeah, they can listen to us on our website, which is Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast.com. Mm-hmm. We are on Instagram at Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast. Uh, we are on any streaming platform like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, what have you. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at. Okay. And uh, if you have a survival story of your own, you don't have to have tried to climb a mountain, broken your leg, and fallen into a crevasse and crawled out of said crevasse six miles back to your base camp. But if you have, we want to hear about Mm -hmm. it. Let us know. Um, It can be something where you are just had an uncomfy experience in nature or something kind of dangerous happened while you were out on a hike that you're not too fond about. It can be anything like that. So um, you can send those to um, we have a page on our website where you can submit stories um, or you can submit them to our Gmail. Um, If you want to support the podcast, but don't have any money because we live in a capitalist hellscape and it's also Christmas. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are spending money. (laughs) Give us a five-star review on any of our listening platforms to tell the algorithm that these girls need to be listened to, especially when they talk about weddings for 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Unneeded. Unnecessary. It's been my whole year, though, to be honest. Um. But 
another little announcement uh after the next episode which is going to be the 50th episode oh wow which i have kind of a semi-special uh story planned um we are going to be taking a month-long break to basically get our social media shit together yeah (laughs) and for me to have some time to sit down and write some more stories we're only um, two people as well as get ahead at work actually conveniently lined up for once that we're not recording any podcasts so i can finish all my effing manuscripts (laughs) yeah but uh yeah so other than that i think we're done yeah i think so yeah all right all right well i guess until next time (laughs) stay safe but most of all stay curious explorers See you later. Goodbye.